Hello there, this is Lisa Borders, and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Hello, everybody. Lisa Borders here. I am so thrilled. We have such a treat today. My friend Brooke Baldwin is here, a fellow Atlantan, a former anchor at CNN, and now a published author. Oh my God, I'm so glad to have you, Brooke. What's good? Uh, I've been wanting to talk to you and know you and be friends with you, Lisa Borders, for a long time. You are a legend. You are a legend, and especially in Atlanta, my hometown. Oh, you are so kind. You are so kind. Well, let's get to it. I want to understand all the things that are happening in your life. We've got so many things in common. So let's go all the way back, Brooke. You and I, people laugh at me all the time, but I'm always (laughs) looking for connections. You and I graduated from the same high school in Atlanta. The Westminster schools, right? We were there at different times. And I started in 69 during the era of desegregation, not just in Atlanta, but of course, all over the country. I had a really unique experience and I've talked about that here on the podcast. Can you talk about your experience there? And did you get bit by the journalism bug Mm. there or was that later? So I went to public elementary school in Atlanta, and then I came into Westminster in the sixth grade. And for people listening, Westminster is one of those elite, private, very white, although it's vastly improving and diversifying, Christian private schools in Atlanta. It's tip top. I remember how big of a deal it was when you're in the sixth grade, like 11, 12. I remember running to the mailbox, like as though I was getting into Carolina, like as though I was getting my college acceptance. It was like, I got into Westminster. So this was a big deal. And I loved being a student. I loved academia. In most classes, I was like the gal in the front row. I took everything from the VAPs to tried being in theater. I made it into Macbeth once. I'm just not much of an actor, but still I wanted to be part of that. I ran for you know student class president more times than is probably normal. I was my senior girls class president and was just very involved. I was like the captain of the cheerleaders in the fall. And then I threw the shot put in discus with a very different group of women in the spring. I know my parents showed up to the football games, but let's just say like me hurling a rust stinky ball from the crook of my neck every weekend in the spring. Not as many people showing up for that. But still, that was when I think my love and respect for women and huddles of women really began was at Westminster. And I was, did the journalism bug bite? I definitely loved English and language were my things. I knew I would take that journey into college. And I knew that I was really a massive Oprah fan. Like we're still living in the era of Oprah. And I admired like Jane Polly and Katie Couric. So I was interested. And of course, being from Atlanta, I always joke, you grew up in Atlanta, you drink Coca-Cola, you root for the Braves and you watch CNN. So I was very aware of Ted Turner, like went to Fulton County Stadium so many times with binoculars. And my mom and I were like looking for Jane Fonda and Ted Turner. So it was probably like the early seeds of what would become 
a journalism career. That is so fascinating that a lot of that started right here in the city. But then as we get to college, like our paths diverged, you went to the other university, (laughs) the one with sky blue in North Carolina. But so fascinating that both of us picked colleges in North Carolina. So relatively close to home. Talk a little bit about, oh God, can I say it? Carolina. The University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, has an outstanding journalism school. It's now media and journalism school. We called it the J School back in the day. And my first internship in college was at CNN. In fact, I was rejected and I literally talked my way. I'll never forget the in, the guy in charge of the internship, this guy named Willie. I somehow talked my way into an internship, like creating this opportunity for myself in Atlanta. And it really changed those small moments that changed the course of your life. Yeah. It was 1999, maybe summer of 99, when I was in that newsroom at CNN Center downtown in Atlanta, where I just was a sponge and took it all in. I was working on this now defunct travel show called Travel Now. The executive producer of the show is a woman, like a bunch of the correspondents were women. The PA I was working with was a woman. And so I was like, awesome. This must be like full of women in journalism. Little did I know later how totally male dominated it would be and how I'd have to really like find my space within that. And then I would sneak down on my lunch break, like a kid pressing my face up against the glass wall, watching the news angle do the news on the set and in the middle of the newsroom. And that's when I knew, Lisa, that I had to be part of this. I just didn't know, would I be behind the camera calling the shots as a producer or would I try my hand at trying to be on camera? And we know which choice I made down the road, but being at Carolina and being in the journalism school after having that CNN internship really laid the groundwork for my career. Not only is that fascinating, I am just so inspired by the fact that a rejection (laughs) caused you to pick up the phone and talk about resilience coming to life, like immediately talking your way into CNN. And then, girl, you talked your way for 13 years. Let's be clear. But let me go back to the first station when you worked in Charlottesville, Virginia. So we're still south of the Mason-Dixon line. But this is your first big shot. Talk about that. And what did you learn there? Obviously, some seeds were being planted literally from high school and college and internships. So I'm starting to see the thread here. But talk a little bit about that experience in Charlottesville at that station and what you might have learned. So in TV terms, there are 200 TV local markets, right? Number one is New York City. It's the big leagues. 200 is some small town in Alaska. And there I was with my proud Carolina degree, landed in market 192, Charlottesville, Virginia, the NBC affiliate, Dateline 29 News, where I was hired as a reporter And I was thrilled just beyond that I would actually be doing the thing that I was so passionate about and felt called to do. So I'm 21. My mom drops me off in my car, sleeping on a futon in somebody's apartment, making nothing and start covering everything from like water skiing squirrels to the double homicide that shook Charlottesville. And realized I was in a newsroom where there were a couple of women my age learned very early on. And I write about this in the book about scarcity mentality versus abundance. I've just always been a person. I don't know if my mom raised me right or what, but I've just always believed in your success is my success as a woman to woman or my success is yours. Or how can I lift you up? 
Like I had a huddler flashing from my forehead. And I remember early on learning, like there was a woman who had maybe six months on me at the TV news station and, and you're assigned beats. And so if you have a big beat, that's a big deal. And I had really proven myself in the first couple of weeks, they hand me the hugest county, Albemarle County to cover. And so that would just mean I'd be in charge of whatever news broke in Albemarle County. It would be on me to break it and to cover it. And I was so thrilled. And then the next day I come into work, I learned that beat was taken from me. And I found out that this young woman yanked it from me, went to the boss with like behind my back. And it sounds so silly and trivial now, but it was really a big learning moment for me of, all right sharp elbows, like, all right. And it was amazing because the men in the newsroom couldn't have been nicer, couldn't have been more like, let me show you how it's done. Let me show you how I nurture my sources within the police department. But that was like tough. Like women early on are not always the kindest to one another, can be detrimental within a career. And so I made it my mission to seek out those slightly older women who would take me under their wing and embrace my loud and proud ambitions. Charlottesville would not be the place that I would work for the rest of my life. And then the last thing I'll say about Charlottesville is ultimately I was promoted, meaning I got to have my own show at like seven in the morning on the weekend. So when my girlfriends from Carolina would all be out at a bar when they were living in Atlanta or DC or New York, having a good time at happy hour, I'd be going to bed then wake up on a Friday or Saturday at two or three in the morning to then be the one woman newsroom to edit, write my show, roll the teleprompter with my foot, roll it backwards and screw up for five people watching. But that's when I learned how to hustle. You learn how right. to hustle early. Right. You were also multitasking, which totally. is so interesting to me, but emotionally and intellectually, it sounds like there were some challenges there. I've experienced this too. I think all women have where oftentimes you have one woman who thinks she must be the queen bee. She can yes. be the only one as opposed to the huddle that yes. we're going to talk about in just a minute, because you've yes. referenced it a couple of times, but I'm much older, a generation than you are. So I probably saw it the most. I'm beginning to see this change with mm -hmm. folks in your cohort, your generation. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about that a little bit, because I know you during your 13 years at CNN have covered so much. So I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about the people yeah. behind that. But 13 years, girl, that's a long oh. dang time. And yeah. I can remember being in India when I was working at the Coca-Cola company, mm. turning on the TV and mm -hmm. seeing your shining face talking about wow. Snowmageddon wow. in Atlanta. And I was like, okay, Brooks got this covered. Let me see <laughs> what's happening. But of all the things you covered, are there stories that stand out? whether it was about Atlanta or whether it was about the country or the globe that gave you some new perspective on something. Like it's one thing to read the teleprompter and read the notes in front of you, but was there a story or stories even that really left like an indelible mark because it changed your perspective or taught you something? Yeah, of course. I could give you a million examples. I think for me, yes, it was cool to be able to talk to famous people, but honestly, the people that really left marks on my heart are who I refer to as extraordinary, ordinary Americans. So it's everyone from, let's go back to Westminster. So I imagine when you were at Westminster, they were probably like, you could probably count on one hand how many black boys and girls were in your class. I, I oh, oh, Brooke, remember, 
I, there was only one. That was me. Only one. I was person of color number eight. That's been my lucky number my entire life. So only wow. one. In my son's class, he was the class of 2000. He was the first minority legacy in the history of the school. Wow. So we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. But more on that at another time. Go back to your story. So when I'm coming along, I was class of 97. And there were, you could probably count on two hands how many black boys and girls there were. And one of them, his name is Bobby Rashad Jones. And he came in on scholarship, man, his parents, his dad, I think had played for the Falcons at one point. His mom was a disciplinarian, Carolyn Jones. And everybody knew that family. I love that family. Rashad was someone who you talk about checking your privilege, coming from Atlanta, being a white woman, being exposed to so much, and then rolling into the school and realizing, wow, look at someone like Rashad, who takes him an hour to come in one way every day, plays sports, is a good student. Anyway, I just adored him. And he's one of my closest friends to this day. He's a commander in the U.S. Navy, went on to Annapolis, could have played football at all these schools, Ivy League and non, and chose to serve his country. And we're in time. He's in the Middle East right now. And there was a point where one of our assignments at CNN was to pick a person who inspired and changed your life. And I picked Rashad. And... I did this whole story and the Navy, somebody at the Pentagon was watching CNN that day because they invited me to the Middle East to come see Rashad in action. And this was just a couple years ago, but it was the story when people run into me in the street, they're like, oh my God, your story with your friend from your high school. I flew out to the, the Persian Gulf. He was stationed on a guided missile cruiser. So I'm like, land on this aircraft carrier, which is a whole other amazing, crazy story of what that's like. And I'm flown over and you talk about people of color in the military and just seeing, I was like a mess of tears, just traveling that far to get to see because I know his wife and his two girls and he's away from them a lot. And just to be able to be there and to show the rest of the world, our friendship that we come from very different parts of Atlanta, but despite it all, or because of all of it, we have maintained this incredible relationship and also to show everyone what it's like for our men and women in uniform to be on the front row of the war on terror. That was ISIS and bombing Iraq and Syria. And that was something that I'll just never ever forget that moment. And then the second thing I'll say is I was in that chair at CNN in the afternoon a lot. And I sat through and had to cover so many shootings, mass shootings, school shootings, we'd have a whole show prepared. And it was just the teleprompter would go blank. My executive producer would get in my earpiece and say like with three little nuggets of information. And there was a time there, Lisa, where it was happening all the time. And I would get, it's hard not to get very upset just again. And I would be in the middle of conversation with somebody else on some totally unrelated topic. And I'd have to pivot and potentially carry the show for the next 90 minutes ad-libbing based upon whatever information I have, knowing how delicate I need to be given the subject nature and that people who may have loved ones in that location could be tuning in and watching. I can't get ahead of myself. I've got to be factually precise. And then I would just oftentimes then get put on a plane to go to that place when my show would end. When I, I remember coming back from Newtown, I remember I was living in Midtown Atlanta and on a high rise. And I remember after seeing the, the little white caskets and just being in that space 
first graders and then coming back and watching the sunset in Atlanta and not even bothering to turn on my lights and just weeping for those families thinking these children will never see the sunset again. Oh, I'll just never, ever forget that. You know what? I can feel you now, just like I could feel your emotion coming through the screen when you used to cover these stories. And I can see and hear and feel that it had a visceral impact on you. And as I think about what we're going through today, because you recently left CNN, but the gun violence hasn't left this country. In fact, they've knocked down the assault weapons ban in California recently. So what you have experienced, I will predict will continue and accelerate until we get a handle on all of this. And I know you covered much of the shooting at the school, the high school in Florida. Yes, Parkland. Did you have the same sort of response there? Because I think that was before Newtown, correct? No, or was no, it, it was several it was years after. after. It was after. Just, yeah, it was several years after. And it was high schoolers. And again, I was sent, I was there the very next day. And you roll up with your crew and there's, it's a whole elaborate, if anyone's ever seen what looks like a media circus, you yeah. know, with tons of camera crews. And you always know it's a big story when you're hearing other reporters standing on your left and your right speaking in other languages. They've been flown in from Spain, Mexico, England, Japan, what have you. And you're all covering the same thing. And I'll never forget standing there. And again, it's so much of it is raw and just coming in. And there was a woman, a mother who lost her 15 year old daughter. And we had just turned the sound around and this correspondent was playing the sound of this mother shrieking over losing her child. And he tossed it back to me and I was standing next to Congressman Ted Deutsch. I was about to interview the Congressman about gun laws in America. And Lisa, again, another thing I'll never forget of just hearing this mother shrieking and coming out and it's, what could I possibly say? Sometimes in moments, you just have to let the silence breathe. And I did. And tears started coming down my face. And it's like this funny thing of, as a woman and being aware of like my gender and being on TV and not wanting to be too soft, but at the same time, wanting to just be human and reacting in real time to those moments. And it's a return of the Congressman. And I gave him this look and he's crying and I'm crying. And we had just a real conversation about how this has to stop and how frustrating it is that they haven't been able to get their act together in Washington over it. And Emma Gonzalez, who later became one of the faces of that, I interviewed her, I think the following day among a number of students. And what was incredible was that a lot of those kids were about to turn 18 and were about to then be involved in being able to vote and speak up. And I covered that giant rally in Washington where she stood up there for, I can't remember how many minutes in silence representing how long that shooter took to murder her classmates. Awful. It's a traumatic environment that we're living in. People are having traumatic experiences. So whether we're talking about Newtown or whether we're talking about Parkland and the common thread there is guns and gun violence, it's domestic terrorism is what it is. And you have covered that so eloquently and that respectfully because of your humanity. But I do recognize the push and pull of I'm a woman. Can I cry? Should I cry? What should I do? How should I handle myself? 
And it makes me think about all the things we were taught from a historical perspective about gender roles and gender bias. We weren't really taught gender bias. We were just taught girls should do this and boys should do that. Exactly. So the gender bias is there, but all the violence that has happened in our country, like we're starting to have a bit of a reconciliation or not reconciliation, a reckoning Same. is more what we're having. We hope to have a reconciliation. You posted recently about, when I think about violence, this one of your posts came to mind about what you learned in school about history. For example, like Rosa Parks, you learned mm. about civil rights history in Atlanta, but you did not learn oh. about things like Tulsa, the Tulsa yep. massacre. So when I think about guns and domestic terrorism and violence, one American against another, the fear that drives all of that, Give me your impression of what's happening today, particularly as people start talking about critical race theory. And mm. really what people mean is talk to me about all of history, not just a sanitized version. Mm. And to give you some context for what I'm thinking, just to be fair, someone invited me to speak for Black History Month in February. And I said, I'm really not a big fan of Black History Month and their face just went blank. And mm. I said, Black history is American history. Mm. It should not be segregated or relegated to February. It should be throughout. Wow. So that's really what people are talking about in critical race theory. But tell me your thoughts about what you were taught, what you've since learned and what impressions that gives you today about the country and where we are? Specifically on race. So growing up in Atlanta, I was very aware of other kids of color. I told you I went to public elementary school and I remember this little black boy, Walter, in my class in like the second grade. And I would always try to sit next to him because I remember a lot of the other kids didn't want to. And I couldn't quite understand why. And I also, though, grew up with neighbors who used the N-word, a white family, little kids, use the N-word freely. And I knew that was bad and wrong. I didn't understand the history fully at the time. Growing up, again, my street was Rebel Valley View and kids would be stealing the street sign all the time because they thought that was cool, like Confederate, Rebel, what have you. And again, like coming up through Westminster and only seeing however many Black boys and Black girls, I was just very aware. But also, I think I was aware, but maybe a little bit ignorant to some of it. And I only say that because going back to my friend Rashad, and I have a number of people of color who are friends of mine, but since everything happened last summer with George Floyd, I have found myself in deep conversation with my own personal huddle, a couple of white gals and my best friend's Japanese and talking about, wow, going back to even high school, like what could we have done differently or having really tough conversations with Rashad about, he's only confided in me in recent years about being called the n-word by white kids that I went to school with knowing these guys were jerks but had no idea some of the stuff that they did not even just to him but to my best friend Aki who's Japanese but through everything that's been happening within the AAPI community I just didn't know maybe I should have asked I understand why they didn't share and I'm giving you a long like long-winded answer to I think that I've always tried to be an ally but when I wrote this book I became very aware that Black women have been huddling since like the dawn of time. Like 
Kimberly Springer, this black historian, and I my, made sure my first stop on my huddle journey with these black women judges in Harris County, Texas, who are just extraordinary. I wanted to honor them and that legacy and making them the first stop because so you talk to black women and they're like, wait, this is breaking news. Like we have Alpha Cal like AKAs and Deltas and right. But I wanted to write this book to honor that because I wanted to put this word huddle to this concept of something that particularly black women have been doing for so long. And at the end of the day, I think because of what happened in Minneapolis with George Floyd. And that was my alpha omega moment at CNN. Like my ending was the Derek Chauvin trial and the fact that just seeing justice done, that level of justice showed me that I want to say we've come a ways, but like Lord knows we have long way to go. And especially when it comes to white women and with my own privilege, I know that we have to approach all of this with an intersectional perspective. I can't be like, yeah, women, let's create our own table. But if I have a table of women at a company and they all look like me, that's not progress. And I hope that comes through in the book that I feel very strongly about that. And I think that it's very easy for white women to be lazy and to not pay attention and be inclusive and even realize a behavior that's excluding the black woman sitting in the cubicle next to you at work. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I'll be a little bit more charitable than you. Having talked with some of my white female friends, what they're telling me is exactly what you're telling me. It's incremental progress every day. But that even if we look back to the 19th Amendment, that white women were trying to keep the black women back and maintain their privilege until the black woman said, hold up, wait a minute, like we're either going to be in this together or yes. we're not going to do it. It's not happening. So when I talk to my white female friends today, some of them tell me, Yes, I want things equitable. Yes, I want things fair. But my concern is if things are fair, and they say this to me, Brooke, if things are fair and even my son may not be able to move forward. And I'm comforted by the fact that they feel safe enough to have this conversation with me. And I think that really gets to the root of the issue is they're trying to protect their firstborn or their son or their daughter. So they want equity so long as their kid can still be guaranteed entrance to Carolina or entrance to Westminster or entrance to CNN or wherever. Have you heard that before? I, I think that is such an important point. And I was sitting in Atlanta last month talking to a mutual friend of ours who we were talking about what had happened in Georgia with Flipping It Blue. And I was telling her about a good girlfriend of mine, white woman, worked in the Bush White House, Republican, but having interviewed Stacey Abrams and having been in her home and just reading a lot about her, I had a big conversation about Stacey with my friend. And in the end, my friend ended up voting for Stacey for governor. And then our friend and I were talking about, she was saying to me, she's a black woman, powerful woman in Atlanta. And she was saying she too has had these conversations with white women where white women then seem progressive, but then if they have a child, especially a white boy, that they want to make sure that boy maintains that same privilege and therefore that would lead them to not vote Democrat. This is what she was saying to me. And I hadn't as a white woman and as a child, childless woman, mm -hmm. I, I, I had not thought about that, but I think that makes absolute 
total sense. And the other interesting thing she said to me was she was talking about black women and how there is just like this constant sisterhood that, as I said, and as I've researched, like really even predates slavery. It's just, it's like in you. And if you had a date with a girlfriend or you were going out of your way, like you will follow through. But with, she was saying her experience, black woman experience with white women is sometimes this woman had gone out of her way to invite a white friend of hers to a fancy dinner that she paid for. And the woman at the last minute bailed because she got a date. And she was just saying that's where it's different. I think her point was just that it would favor more of the white male, I don't know if I'm like throwing this down incorrectly, but she just was dropping some wisdom and opening my aperture in a way that just, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I'm hearing it almost on a daily basis. And as a woman who has lived in the African-American community, most of my life, I've worked in the majority community or the formerly majority community, but lived because we're still a segregated society. As much as it is illegal to discriminate in housing, we self-segregate to some extent. I'm just going to put it out there. But in terms of women, I'm an Alpha Kappa Alpha sister. So the huddle, it's a Greek organization, but it's a service organization founded on the campus of Howard University, as you well know, in 1908. So when we think about in the Black community, women sticking together, I'm not saying it's perfect, but there have been vehicles that we have used, and that's just one example. So I want to talk about your book. That brings me to Huddle, because you've mentioned it a couple of times. And let me just remind everybody, this is a bestseller, a New York Times bestseller. So go out and buy this book to support my friend, Brooke, but more importantly, so you can learn. But start at the beginning. You mentioned Huddle from when you used the shot put or threw the shot put or the discus. What brought you to that title? Obviously, it's been important in your life, but talk about the title first, because everybody thinks writing a book is hard, and it is, (laughs) but let's just start at the beginning. I came to this title very intentionally because to me, huddle is more of a masculine word. Certainly women in sports, of course, they huddle, WNBA, soccer, what have you, but traditionally, I think of a bunch of men on a football field huddling, and I wanted to take a word like that, flip it on its head, and I wanted to feminize it. And it's also a concept I'm defining huddle loosely is like where women are most energized, where they go to to be energized by the mere fact of their coexistence. It can be a place where women thrive and succeed and get amazing shit done, like really transformational, or it can be a place in a quiet church basement where we simply bear witness to one another. And it's something that we've been doing for years and years and centuries in some cases, but there hadn't been a word for what women have been doing. And I wanted to legitimize it, to name it, and for us to own it. I love that. And I know Stacy loves that. I'm going to go back to our mutual friend because she and I have huddled from City Hall in 2004 to bringing a WNBA team here in Atlanta and everything in between. When you talked with her Hmm. about this book and interviewed her, were there any nuggets? Because girlfriend is dropping nuggets all the damn time. I got loads, I got loads, I got loads. (laughs) Give give me a nugget or two so we can entice people even more to read. Okay, so Stacey Abrams is an OG huddler. And I'm going to take you back to when Stacey is 29 years of age. She's a deputy city attorney in Atlanta. This is her first taste of power or access to power. There's a whole section in my book about sponsorship and about how when women have access to power, you can turn around and catapult all these other women with you. 
And so she's this deputy city attorney. She's got all these secretaries, was the word she used back in the day. That's what we call them, secretaries, who were these brilliant women whose salaries were capped because they didn't have like paralegal status, but they knew like the ins and outs of Georgia law in a way that could take a lawyer down. And they were frustrated because they were only making so much. And she was frustrated that they were frustrated because she wanted them to do their best work for her and for the city. And so she went to the city and was able to work out a deal where they could increase their education and experience, thus make more money. And so it was a win-win for everyone. So she sponsored all these secretaries and they were able to move up in the world. And then her whole thing is not hoarding power. And so she then talked about, of course, how we know how she was able to help flip Georgia to be blue for the first time since 1992. And when she was first the House Minority Leader in the Georgia State House, one of the things you have to learn really quickly is how to fundraise. And so Stacey Abrams is like a Jedi fundraiser. (laughs) Now, when it came to flipping the state, she actually literally shared the wealth. She gave away a fourth of her funds to other um, similarly minded organizations, women of color. And so altogether they were able to to do this incredible thing in Georgia. And those are just a couple of her diverse huddle, her diverse group of friends as well. And, and I think of also Ava DuVernay as someone else. When you think of sponsorship, I was out in, um, I was in New Orleans on the set of Queen Sugar, which is this beautiful show. If you've never seen I love that show. I love Queen Sugar. It's, I'm like, in, it's five seasons in. Every single episode is directed by a woman. And so I went down there and I featured Ava because talk about somebody who has extraordinary access to power as this like baller, successful black woman filmmaker director. And she could take all the fame to herself and direct all these episodes and hoard and hoard the power and she chooses to share it. So she's created this pipeline, like newsflash, Hollywood is very white and very male. And so she's been able to take all of these women directors and a lot of women of color directors and have them come through Queen Sugar and direct. And as a result of that, she's creating a pipeline in Hollywood where now there are all these women directors who are going on to go direct network shows And I remember saying to Ava, like, I was being contrarian. I was saying, like, why are you sharing the love? Why share the wealth? Why not be you and do it all? And she was like, Brooke, I don't want to be at the party alone. And I was just like, oh, she meant literally because she's at all these industry parties. And she's like the only Black woman. She's like a unicorn. She's the only Black woman sitting at these parties. But she literally and figuratively didn't want to be at the party alone. And I just admire that ethos. And I put Stacey and Ava in very similar categories in that respect. Not wanting to hoard the power, wanting to share it. Abundance mentality. I could not agree more. And I love the notion of decentralized power, which is what's Mm -hmm. freaking out folks who are currently in power, whether it's in Georgia or New York or California or Washington State or Washington, D.C., those who have been in power literally for decades are freaking out because the world is changing right in front of them. And folks like Stacey and Ava are the tip of the spear. So this, this notion of decentralized power reminds me of sports teams and huddles. You had a huddle to get your instructions, but then you have to go forth and conquer as a team. So talk a little bit more about huddle as you thought about who to talk with. You mentioned before 
the attorneys in, I think it was Houston. Texas and Houston. Houston. So talk a little um, bit more about how you decided what types of women and where you would go and what types of questions and how you would solicit and gather that information. I mean, if I may, I was just totally selfish in this whole exercise, <laughs> totally self-serving <laughs> because every day I sat and I had this like privileged platform on CNN for two hours, but you know, newsflash, like it was the Trump administration at the time. And it was not, it was a busy news cycle. Yeah. And that also meant that like huddles don't always make the headlines. And so I would see these stories of these women doing these things, but it just couldn't make the show. <clears throat> and I had this like list of women I just really had been wanting to interview. And these judges in Texas were literally at the top of this list. And again, a midterm election with a bunch of women judges is not the sexiest story. Let me just put that out there. Like I recognize <laughs> that, but the fact it was 2018. So you think back to, all right, so Trump wins. And again, I'm like Tamika Mallory at the Women's March was like, he is not the reason we are all here. And I stand by that. But the Trump inauguration Women's March was January of 17. And then you had Time's Up, Me Too. And then this huge wave of women running for office in the country in 2018. And there were these 19 Black women in a very red district in Harris County, Texas, who wanted positions on the bench. And the photo that a producer of mine at CNN sent me, because she knew I'd want, was this picture of these 19 Black women looking like regal and Black and white in this courtroom. And it was before they had won and they were brilliant because they huddled on the campaign trail. These women have like bazillion years experience all put together. But they said to me over brunch in Houston, when I took them out to interview them, they had only gone in front of Black judges like a handful of times. But then they were like, Brooke, how many times have we gone in front of a Black woman judge? You could count on your pinky finger. They wanted to change that. And also just from the perspective of like Black women and mothers and seeing a lot of Black boys coming through the judicial system, they can change they, they would have the power to change a lot. And so they end up winning their primaries. They're looking around this small room and they're, you know, they're counting all these like beautiful black faces. And they're like, okay, we need to pull our resources together and huddle and campaign together. And the Democratic Party didn't even want them to. But they- Stop, really? Yes. yes. Wow. I don't know the idea of a bunch of black women together. I don't know. But they were like, that's cute, but we're still going to huddle and campaign. And they hit, they went on a whole black church circuit. They were like rock stars. Once they, they put out this photo of the 19 of them, they were able to win. They won. And to this day, they huddle from the bench to think that I would sit at the anchor desk and people would never believe me. Like in commercial break, I'd be texting people and they'd be like, aren't you working? But similarly, when they're like, Brooke, we're on the bench and we're in the middle of a trial and there's a question about like penal code 808 over some family court issue, they'll stop the trial, go to their huddle text chain of, they call themselves Black Girl Magic, and they'll text one another like an SOS. I'm asking for help. We women don't always do that. We don't want to burden people. And um, they hold each other accountable and they're all members of either they're the black sorority. So they really schooled me on just that is a lifetime commitment and the sisterhood is in the blood. And they're just incredibly impressive to have that many black women in those positions of power where you really can change the face of the justice system in Texas. That's one example of a huddle that I just had to go interview them. Or of course, I love the WNBA and I have a whole section about women within not just basketball. And of course, 
how is so admire so I talked to Neko Gumake and Sue Bird about and I've talked to Lasia Clarendon separately about like dedicating the season to Brianna Taylor and just how they're really at the forefront of huddling around something and talk about something too that to your point about decentralizing power and being as Alicia Garza of Black Lives Matter said to me because BLM is very very much the same way and she was saying like Brooke look at the WNBA is a perfect example of uh, she doesn't say leaderless it's leaderful so many dots around the circle not some sort of centralized power and how they've brought forth issues black women being murdered and I could just go on and on about all these people I interviewed and why I just love the passion I absolutely love the passion and what as I was listening to you I'm thinking about there were 19 black women there's the 19th amendment like there was Mm -hmm. all kinds of synergy that was going through my head. I was like, oh, the universe was at play. All these women got together despite what traditional thinking would have been because I have run for office. Stacy has run for office. You've seen people run for office. It's a lonely journey. So the fact that they decided to work together, that teamwork was really the way to go, right? To huddle first, and not only during the campaign, but to maintain and sustain those connections sounds like an enlightened approach to me, not only for campaigning, but for living your life and being able to have a fulfilling one professionally and personally. So that's (laughs) fabulous as I think about huddle in the book. And that is not only a fabulous title and fabulous content. It's really asserting a new paradigm for leadership is what you're talking about, whether Mm -hmm. it's politics or whether it's sports. This is a new framework, a new way to think about this and behave in these individual and different areas. Let me move and talk a little bit more about CNN because Huddle has come right at the tail end of CNN. And I know you have often described your former job with great affection, but you've also had concern around this idea of comfort, that Mm -hmm. when you get comfortable, you get a little bit complacent and it Mm -hmm. really doesn't serve you well in terms of creativity and innovation and growing and moving forward. So writing the book, you have left CNN and written a book. Tell me, why did you do that now? And what's next, Brooke? Because girl, you've been turning the world upside down for more than a minute. So this is a selfish question. I just want to know. Yes. Thank you. So I started writing the book. I had probably two more years left on my contract at CNN. And so I was lucky that I was able to get in a lot of these big interviews in person before like the world shut down. And that obviously churned a lot up in me. Live TV and having my own show, talk about major, huge gratitude to that and, and privilege. I'd have you on and they'd be like, all right, you got Lisa Borders on for five minutes, live TV. I'd come up with 18 questions, but I don't have time for three. And it'd be like, quit it and move on. Like the next, move on, the next, move on. And when I sat down with these women, like the black judges in Houston over brunch, over shrimp and grits, made the <laughs> Southern heart happy. Oh my or, Lord. Or wherever I was meeting Reese Witherspoon's production company, Hello Sunshine in Santa Monica, and really sitting with these people for like hours at a time. It was like the deep end of listening and conversation and details in a way that I wasn't accustomed to. And I realized that 
I was interested in that, number one. And number two, I'd finish the interviews and I'd hit stop on the recorder. And then these women would be like, whoa, no, we're not done. Tell us what makes you tick, Brooke Baldwin. And why are you writing this book? And what is it like being a woman in journalism? And what do you really want to do? What's the next act for Brooke Baldwin? And it got me thinking. And then the world stopped. We're all locked in a pandemic. And then pretty soon after I got COVID. So this was April of 2020. I was knocked on my ass in my apartment in uh, Soho in New York. I mean, talk about coming to Jesus with my own self. And so I started having thoughts and was journaling just about like next steps and bigger new things and recalibrating dreams. So it's like a wild thing when you work so hard to achieve the dream, which for me was hosting my own show at CNN and then hosting it for a decade and then thinking there's more. And as a woman, like, am I supposed to think that? Am I supposed to have like bigger thoughts or bigger dreams or should I just be fine doing the thing? And and again, it was an incredible run. I don't have the answer and maybe we'll chat over some uh, beverages in Atlanta at some point. I am really surrounding myself. I'm going to go on this listening tour, listening to, I just want to keep continue what I did with these women in my book of just like, I just want to hear about women who've worked maybe part of a big thing and then have gone out on their own or have had their own leaps in their life. And I know that I'm a storyteller. I know that I'm, I'm an interviewer. I'm a journalist. I would love to wiggle my nose and say, ah, I'm hosting this unscripted doc series for HBO or Netflix about X. And it doesn't all have to be in the women's space. I'm fascinated by men too. And just ordinary, extraordinary American stories, I think would be amazing. And maybe I have another book in me. We know you got another book. (laughs) Book number one, it's a bestseller. Come on now, as the old folks say, you have now put that in the universe. The universe (laughs) is going to conspire for your success. I'm just so proud to know you and so Uh, proud uh, of you. But let me ask you a couple more questions because you've been so generous here and shared so much. You talked about how at the time you covered some interviews, particularly around gun violence, it made you tear up. You felt what was happening. I read your essay about having COVID and being Uh, stuck in your apartment, crying in isolation, being just beside yourself. So you have come a mighty long way emotionally, not only to wonder should you cry or is it okay to cry in front of the camera to writing an essay and publishing it telling people who would not have known you were crying in your apartment what gave you that strength or can you talk about the arc of that development that you went from oh crap did i just cry on tv to hey y'all i'm crying and the discomfort is real like i'm Mm. sick as shit Mm. i'm uncomfortable Mm. i don't know what i'm gonna do next help me with the arc of that because it's impressive oh you are so good lisa you are (laughs) so good i'm trying to be like you when i grow up thank you for noticing and and i think i I can only speak to my own experience when the world shut in but it's all the bullshit just sort of went away and we were forced to sit with ourselves whether you were sick or not, you were forced to sit with yourselves. I think it was Glennon Doyle that gave this great metaphor for it. We're all these snow globes in a normal society with all the shit and the calendars and the quote unquote busyness, the snow would be all around. But then once that pandemic hit and we were shut in, it was like, bam, snow is resting on the ground of the snow globe and you are stuck with you. 
And what are you going to do about that? And how do you feel about that? And it's time now to really look at those parts of yourself that you admire and also the parts that you can improve upon. And I think that I realized when I was sick with COVID, I didn't have time to put on airs or put on makeup or any of those things. And I realized I couldn't believe, I think as a journalist, I am my most comfortable not being in the center of attention, but having someone else shine. I'm good at that. And it was an odd thing when the roles were reversed and suddenly like I was making the news and I am the subject of push notifications in my phone. And people then started reaching out to me in ways I wasn't initially comfortable with because of the love and the care. And then I was like, Brooke, my God, accept it, embrace it and channel it. And that's exactly what I did. And I think as a result of just the external forces in my own growth, having interviewed all these women Um, seeing these women just live these true authentic lives, it just all clicked. And so I wrote this piece. It's a very unvarnished version of myself. There's a photo of me looking like crap, laying over the sofa, just like sick. And I was reading a lot of Brene Brown. It was like this perfect storm of everything while I was sick in bed. And that was like really a delineation line for me of, all right, I'm going to take this filter off and take this filter off and just present myself because... I think we're also in a place where people just want authenticity and I've got authenticity to share. We all do. And so from that article and the millions of people, and when I got the call from freaking Ellen DeGeneres' team to be on her show, I was like, what, what, what? Okay. That was again, like reinforcement. And so I think from there forward, and also this is so silly, having to do my own hair and makeup at CNN, which I'm horrible at, you would think I'd be a professional, but because I've been blessed with like professionals for so long, but because of COVID, I just put a lot less on. I was less done. I just felt again, more me. I'm sitting at the news desk where you can only see me from here up. And I've got like my Jordans and my ripped jeans on with a professional looking top. So you would never know, but I felt just more in my own skin and more comfortable. And the more comfortable you get, the more who you are. And I can't go back. I can only go forward. And so I say all of that to say I am on a journey. I think we all are to some extent. And mine is just like maybe a little more public. And I share it with people if you follow me on Instagram. And I don't totally know where I'm going. And the old Brooke would have been completely freaked out about that because I am a total type A, like control freak. But some wise people around me have just been saying, Brooke, hold, slow your roll. Don't rush into anything. And so I'm being very intentional this summer about just focusing on me and the things that I've been meaning to do and being around wise women, Lisa Borders, and then ultimately finding the thing that is the new dream. Listen, girl, we are so happy for you. Those of us who are watching, because everybody's not paying attention. They want to pay attention, but the pandemic has got people a little bit off balance. But as we re-engage, it's clear to me that folks like yourself have been on a journey, but now you're able to look back retrospectively, appreciate where you've been and all the pearls of wisdom that have been captured and think about how you're going to take them out of your pockets, into your hands, cast them out into the world and be comfortable in the most positive sense with everything's going to be all right. If I just trust the universe, trust my own instincts, my fellow Atlantan, former Mm -hmm. CNN anchor and now published 
author. Girl, you are a bad girl. We are so delighted that you spent some time with us. Will you promise to come back? Oh my gosh, I will promise to come back. I'm taking you out to breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or all of the above. I will see you. I will see you in Atlanta, my dear hometown. And thank you for your insightful, thoughtful, cool, loving, just questions and holding the space. And I already had a massive crush on you, but it is like off the chain crush right now. And just thank you. Thank you, Lisa. You are the best. Mutual admiration society. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you. All right, everyone. That was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.